You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. Before we start, I have a couple of housekeeping notes. The Second City has gone from stage to screen and really everything in between. Our live shows in Chicago will be resuming on May 7th with limited capacity in our main stage theater. Look for our other stages to open up in the coming weeks and months. We're also resuming some live in-person classes, corporate shows, and learning sessions. We continue to have virtual offerings in all these areas, as well as hybrid offerings. You can get all the information you need at secondcity.com. Welcome to the world of Tony Ho from CBC Podcasts. It's an award-winning, bite-sized narrative comedy series about human relationships, familiar, hilarious, and sometimes unnerving. The troupe features Miguel Rivas, Adam Niebergall, and alumnus of the Second City Mainstage, Roger Bainbridge. They will take you on a darkly comedic ride that finds honesty in every situation. You can listen and subscribe to Tony Ho on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome back Michael Slaby to the show. He's been on before. Michael helped lead Obama for America as Chief Integration and Innovation Officer in 2012 and as Deputy Digital Director and Chief Technology Officer in 2008. And he currently serves as Community Director at the media research nonprofit Harmony Labs. He has a terrific new book. It's called For All the People, Redeeming the Broken Promises of Modern Media and Reclaiming Our Civic Life. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job At the desk by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Michael Slaby, welcome to the show. It is very good to be back. Uh, yeah, returning champion, as John Lovett would say. Um, so there's a sentence... Second time's a charm, is that a thing? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Maybe. You are up on the list, though, of the uh, and your family. Certainly, if you count the entire family, you're you're in the top echelon of returning guests. That you're, feels re- good. you're a regular Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Never been called that before. This is a first for everything. <laughs> uh, what did Kirkus say in the review? What did they call you? Uh, occasionally witty and relentlessly optimistic. <laughs> All right. Well, see. All right. Let's just we're going to go. You with just got to go with that. Yeah. 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 Um, so, all right. In the intro to your book. There's this line that is still haunting me a week after I read it. And you write, quote, the idea that eight years of Obama land gave way to Trump's America is a ridiculous oversimplification. It reflects a liberal bias and an elitist cultural understanding that are emblematic of our misunderstanding of the world we live in, end quote. So what you are saying is that the problem isn't that the country changed. The problem is that there are two realities that are and have been coexisting this whole time. 
right? Do I have that right? Yes, at least two. At least two. Yeah, the idea that Obama land didn't include Trump's America is the fallacy, right? And it's it's a fallacy because you know the the as the Democratic Party and liberal uh, sort of the urban rural divide has sort of urbanized the left. We spend a lot less time with people with whom we disagree as a yeah. whole. And it makes huge portions of the country, we call them flyover states, right? Like there's this huge, and that's actually a lot of people. Yeah. And, but we pretend like they're invisible and we pay a price for ignoring them. And the and, price was President Trump. Right. And then later you talk about these conversations being parallel and instantaneous. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is a, a very important um, nuanced understanding of, of the problem. And you say, quote, because they are parallel, these conversations don't intersect. Because they are instantaneous, they have no memory or shared context. That is like a nuclear weapon proportion size for the mess we find ourselves in right now. I, I think that's right. And, and I think, um, you know, dysfunction and misinformation and disinformation are not new. Um, propaganda is not new. Mm-hmm. We haven't sort of all of a sudden, you know, President Trump like leaning into this sort of like authoritarian populist grab for self-aggrandizing power is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the nature of how we live in these sort of confirmation bias oriented information cultures that are geographically shared but culturally isolated. It makes us feel like we are right all the time. Mm-hmm. It makes us feel like any disagreement is like an existential threat rather than just right. a challenge to an idea. And look, there are some existential threats. Yeah. I'm not saying there aren't those, those things don't exist, but not everything is an existential threat. And the lack of history means we just can't maintain perspective. And so we're trapped in this like very fast moving sense that we are never enough. We are never fully informed. We are never safe. And as a result, we kind of live in this sort of state of information overload and fear and reactivity that, that makes community really, really tough, especially being in community with difference. And that's something that we actually require in a diverse, inclusive America is to live in community with difference of all kinds of dimensions. Yeah. And it's tough. It's hard. It is, it is challenging emotionally and psychologically to be confronted with difference. And in a re, in a, in the best ways, it makes us uncomfortable and helps us grow. But that discomfort we're pretty bad at right now. Yeah. I should note too, that this is a book would it be fair to say this is a book about media and storytelling at its yes, heart? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100% in the con, in, in sort of in the line of like how Yuval Harari in Sapiens talks about storytelling being sort of fundamental to humanity's capacity for community, that the shared stories we have and the, the shared fictions we have are how we organize society and culture and decide that America is a thing. Like it's a fiction. We made up the idea of a nation state. It's not like an emergent natural phenomenon like gravity. Right. Um, 
but it's something we have agreed to as a way of organizing the world around us into like a big, vaguely coherent container. Um, and our, you know, so as a result, who tells stories, who has the right to tell stories, storytelling. I say this in the book, storytelling is an expression of power and disempowering people by not allowing them to tell their own stories has been a force of oppression forever. Yeah. And, and we're, and we're living in these, uh, uh, what my friend Scott Barry Kaufman calls, um, competitive victimhood right now. Mm. Everyone thinks that they're being canceled. Like there's, right. it's like, it's, con- right. it's like, if I got to hear about Mr. Potato head, Pepe Le Pew one more time it is the most insignificant thing in the world that Tucker Carlson thinks he's being canceled. Um, right. and, but, but, but it's, it does, it goes with everyone. Yeah. Well, the, the absurd, like white fragility of Tucker Carlson and Pierce Morgan is, is like hysterical and laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, you know, cancel culture, first of all, as a trope is a, an, a, a, degen- a, a denigrating epithet created by the right to avoid, to avoid being held accountable for views that are unacceptable. <laughs> yes. Um, but the problem with cancel culture is that it, it, it also suffers from a lack of memory. Mm-hmm. It suffers from a lack of context and a lack of nuance. And it's like too blunt an instrument. It is a, is it, it is, I think represents a, a desperate claim for moral consequences and for mm-hmm. accountability in culture. And, but it's such a blunt instrument that it doesn't really allow for things like redemption right, or nuance, both of which yeah. I actually think we need Right. Yeah. Oh, um, and, and mistakes. I mean, like the, 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 I can't imagine a world in which teenage Kelly, um, all his thoughts were captured and then able to be looked back at, um, oh, and, I, and with, with, with just horrific, uh, uh, consequences. Cause it's like, what would your life be like if YouTube had existed when you were in college? No, no, God, no, no, absolutely not. No. Yes. That is how I react as well. Uh, yeah. Um, why did you, uh, title your first chapter lost like a goat in a pharmacy? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, a, a throwback to one of my favorite high school teachers, um, I was, it's a very serious book. I I take, I'm a very earnest person. I take very seriously the challenges to our civic life, but I try not to take myself too seriously. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the occasionally witty part, I think comes out in some of the like chapter headings. And there are a bunch of, you know, that one was an homage to one of my favorite teachers. There are a bunch of little cultural references sort of like ready player one level sort of random like movie quotes and stuff throughout the book that I yep. just enjoy. Um, but I also think there's something about that image that feels very consistent with how disorienting and dysfunctional our information landscape feels. Like I was hoping to start the book at a place where anybody reading it, regardless of whether they ultimately agree with my perspective on solutions, yeah. which are partisan and, and I'm very opinionated. They're not necessarily party partisan, but I have strong opinions. Mm-hmm. But regardless of whether we agree about what to do, that we can find a sense of commonality in the experience of being disoriented and the frustration that our, we just feel like our systems aren't working and that that is shared. 
that that is not a liberal experience. That is not a, that's not the experience of, you know, a liberal Democrat, former political operative, that that's just the experience of a person in the world right now. Yeah hoping to have a better experience of humanity and community and struggling, which is how I feel a lot of the time. Yeah. I, there's a, 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 a point in the, this chapter that I thought was really um, illustrative of the problem you're talking about. And it's an example of when our stories self diverge and, and what you talk about is the war on drugs uh, and gangs versus the opioid crisis. So can you kind of set up what, how, how that illustrates the, the yeah, I mean, I think it, this is also an example of the the power of narrative over uh, as a representation of uh, of systemic racism for yep. for one, uh, and how the stories we tell shape how we respond to things. Um, that in the '90s, when we talked about the crack academics, our response was a war on drugs, which ultimately was a war on poverty which was ultimately a a war largely on black and brown people Mm -hmm. um, versus what we see now happening with the opioid crisis that we describe in public health terms Mm -hmm. that is happening not exclusively but often in white rural formerly manufacturing communities that we are responding to it as a health problem which is what addiction is and that the distinction changes the solution set that we are willing to consider and that this power of story in this case represents sort of the durability of sort of systemic racism and like thinking about public policy um and you know the ultimately led to mass incarceration and a bunch of other sort of very very durable reinforcing challenges um and where our We've seen already, even in the sort of prosecution of uh, the pharma companies who've been complicit in the opioid crisis, that there have actually been meaningful consequences for these companies already in context because of how we have approached the problem. This yeah. totally transformed our willingness to engage with the problem as a solvable public health crisis, disease, d- deaths of despair, not of moral failing and that's a big it's a very big big difference in how we approach people there's an element of this it's a chicken or chicken and egg i guess question because you write in the book quote nothing could be unhealthier than a democratic polity unwilling to debate but increasingly that is exactly their experience of politics either ardent activism or active avoidance um, I, I wonder what, what came first? Did that come first? And then, and then this, this conversation or this kind of conversation, then the turning off. It, turning it's off. hard to, it's hard to say, right. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I, I think the, I think we've seen those things sort of persist and get worse and they're a little bit reinforced, a little bit of a downward spiral. Um, I talk a little bit in the book too, about if sort of good dedicated public servants continue to see politics as a swamp, then we sort of see the swamp to the swamp monsters and it gets scarier and grosser and it just kind of keeps getting worse and worse. Um, you know, I, I think the sort of disengagement of, you know, we we're supposed to live in a system of self-government. We don't, we didn't want to have a political, like a ruling class, right. When by design, um, but the boundaries to participation and sort of the anti-democratic systems of, 
money in politics and redistricting. And there's just a mm-hmm. bunch of institutional power that has slowly sort of diverged public service from public participation in a way that's really tricky. And the, 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 where media and information come into this is in our ability to, it's sort of related to our ability to be in community with difference um, and to be uncomfortable and to sort of the un- engaging the unfamiliar with curiosity rather than ju- like being judgmental uh, it, that we need to be able to debate that we need to be able to argue about the nature of how we want to solve our collective problems in a way that is productive, but in a media system that is very reductive mm-hmm. and allergic to nuance not really arguing we're just sort of there's a lot of sort of theater there's a lot of sort of performance um there's a lot of virtue signaling there's a lot like there's a lot of there's just a lot of things that aren't remotely productive but are really really loud yeah and it leaves you know there's a body of research you know over the last 10 years that it leaves like a very large proportion of the country just like not feeling like politics has anything to do with them. Yeah. And that's really sad, right? That's, that's, that's sort of, you know, a lot of people who are deeply affected by decisions like making vaccines freely available, politics, government, um, deciding that these people, the people in charge don't care about them, don't know Mm -hmm. about them, don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, And, and why would they participate? in a world where that that's how politics feels. And then you get, you add into that sort of narrative elements like, Hey, your, your job's never coming back. Just get over it. Right. Why is that? Why is that person ever going to participate in politics? Yep. Yep. Um, you, you talk in the book about that. We carry an old map of the way information used to flow. And um, you have chapter two, which is called, I was told there would be no math on this exam. And there, there's math. You, this is, <laughs> This is mappy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I do apologize ma- for that several times. You do. You do. Um, and and uh, for your sins, I'm going to make you try to explain the graph uh, to me as if I were, uh, let's say, a 12-year-old. Well, the 12-year-old gets it naturally oh, yeah, much right. better than you. Gets it. Yeah, yeah. I, I oh, really no, need no. to explain. Explain to me like a 54-year-old, which is okay. what I am. <laughs> uh, it, it's really the big... I, I think I make try to make the case that part of our disorientation is that our assumptions about how information flow don't d- accurately describe the world anymore. And that's part of what makes us feel so disoriented. The assumptions we come into mass media, mass information with are old. They're centuries old. The the going back to the printing press and like the first moments where information was created on a mass level. We have continuously added new ways to get information, but the architecture of how information flowed to us as a person, as an audience, stayed the same. There was a a hierarchy. There was a person Mm -hmm. who wanted to publish something, who used a media channel to deliver information to us, and we consumed it. It's very linear. It's very fixed. We have one job, consume. As the sort of to the 20th century proceed, like per, uh, proceeded, you add radio, you add TV, you add more and more channels, but it's still all channel centric. Yeah. Still mm-hmm. all the same arc, basic architecture. Then you add 
cable networks and then you add mobile networks. And so those channels start to fragment. And now there's just way too many channels to keep track of still channels. Mm-hmm. Content stays where you put it. Now you add the internet and social media. And all of a sudden what happens is all those fragments start getting re- or reconnected by sort of horizontal connectivity of something like Facebook, where content from one channel can be shared somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that horizontal connectivity, what that does, what a graph is, is just a network. It's rather than hierarchical of person using media channel to reach another person. You have all of us are creators, consumers, and sharers of information. We can all play each of those roles in different proportions, depending on our desire and interest. And that means we can't reliably control the direction or flow of information. We can't reliably consider that content will stay where it was put because I might retweet it and then it might end up on Facebook and all these other things. And it, what it disrupts is this linearity and predictability about how information flows and a bunch of other things start to fall apart on us. Mm-hmm. So you basically go from a stable, predictable, hierarchical, gatekeeper-oriented world to a much more free, much sort of more diverse opportunities for voice and storytelling, that power gets distributed more widely to more people, which is ultimately positive, but into a system where one of some of the features of the old system with like the gatekeepers, for instance, were we assumed that the gatekeepers more or less were our arbiters of credibility and authority. Mm. If you got published, you it was because you were credible. Yeah. Well, we can make a very reasonable, important argument that those gatekeepers were really reinforcing a like consistent white male hegemony that was very problematic. And when we broke down the gatekeepers, that's how we got more diversity of voice. But we lost the markers of credibility. Yeah. So now we're in this graph where we're all interconnected in these totally unpredictable ways. We are more connected to more things which is potentially exciting or potentially terrifying and overwhelming, depending on our orientation and how extroverted we are and whether, you know, how we feel about the world, how curious we are as individuals. Mm -hmm. And we don't have good markers for things like, is that piece of information that came to me in this totally unpredictable way? And I'm not sure where it came from credible. Yeah. Shit. I don't know. Yeah. So now I have to be the arbiter of credibility. I have to be, I have to understand where it came from, which is not always easy to tell. In fact, the platforms intentionally make it hard to tell. Yeah. I have to understand the source and perspective and context of that piece of information about a topic at which I'm probably not an expert because I'm not a perfect expert on everything. And so I start to substitute and I'm overwhelmed and I'm getting more content in more directions than I've ever gotten. And I don't have enough time to think. So I start to take shortcuts. I start to assume that if I hear something a lot, it might be true. Mm-hmm. I start to substitute. Well, I, I heard it from Kelly who I trust. So it might be true. Even mm-hmm. if you're not a, an authority on the subject, mm-hmm. I might substitute. Well, it sounds like something I already believe. So it must be true confirmation bias and all these substitutions start to take the place of the like institutional concepts that made information make sense. And now we're just sort of bombarded omnidirectionally by information that is indistinguishable. And that's like totally overwhelming. 
It, and it's not, this is what, I, and I really want to sort of have everyone understand this. It's not that we've exchanged Hearst and Luce for Zuckerberg and Dorsey, though, and th- there is an element of that. Correct. It's that the new channels create a kind of noise and chaos to the information um, and, and the key, pr- and then, but the connection between a Hearst and Luce and Dorsey and Zuckerberg is the almighty dollar. Yes. And that the, the pressure for commercialization is driving a, a lot of the design choices around how this information landscape works and why it is in their interest for us to remain overwhelmed. Yeah, why that, is it, mm-hmm. it is in their interest for us to remain disoriented. Um, and that's, that is deeply problematic. There's a, there is a distinction between the gatekeepers of old and the gatekeepers of now. Um, they, they are all deeply monopolistic. Most of them are white men. There are lots of similarities. Um, w- one of the, the distinctions that I think is really important is that um, the, you know, the, the Zuckerbergs of the world don't create very much content. No. Nope. Almost, almost none. Proportionally, almost none. They are largely d- mechanisms of distribution and discovery. Google, Facebook, different kinds of intent versus serendipity, but distribution and discovery. And uh, as a result, they claim a neutrality that they don't deserve mm-hmm. because anytime you're making a curation choice, a choice about what I see, whether that's a human curating like an editor, Hearst, mm-hmm. what we write about, what we publish, where it gets published, what's above the fold, what we don't write about, the tone of all that stuff, lots of human editorial choices. Mm-hmm. Or algorithmic decisions about what I see and what I don't see, you are not neutral. And the fact that it has become algorithmic does not make this, uh, does not mean that they lack responsibility or that they deserve to avoid responsibility for the choices they are making for me and you and everyone else. I, I find it, I listen to NPR every day. Um, and the more they talk about Facebook and have to say Facebook is a major donor of NPR, and then you hear the Facebook commercials where they're like, it's just hammering home the, the need for legislation, the want for legislation. Yeah. Like, this is so obvious. <laughs> you talk about the foxes are watching the hen house. It's like, sure. And they're doing well, look, it. I do, I do think Facebook wants new regulation mm-hmm. because I don't think they want the responsibility they have. Mm-hmm. Part, part of, look, are, they're a for-profit company. They want that regulation to be in support of continuing to be profitable. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they they are willing to take the moral stance necessary for their pub, the public sphere they have created yep. and to take responsibility for it to being a healthy public sphere. Right. I don't think they're willing to be moral in that way. No. And I think they're they are desperate for someone else to help provide that moral clarity. And the challenge is, can we get that from leadership? We need it. We are desperate for it. That's part of what cancel culture is about, right? Like a desperate desire for moral accountability. Mm-hmm. So desperate that we're use, w- willing to use this like incredibly blunt instrument um, because we need something. We yeah. can't just swim around in the morass without boundaries or without hierarchy or without morality. It's just not reasonable. So let's let's get positive uh, on on how, how we change this because uh, it, it does feel overwhelming. Um, yeah. And you've got you have a few ideas. 
Um, uh, one of the ideas that I really liked was this idea of informed consent. Um, can you talk to us about that? Sure. And I think it's important to, this is an, an important part to acknowledge, like, this is my contribution to a conversation that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of thinkers and a lot of very thought, you know, researchers and academics and policy experts who've been pushing on these questions for years. Um, and so, you know, I, I am joining a conversation, you know, with as much humility as I can around like, not all of this is my, are necessarily born out of my head out of whole cloth. Like I did not invent fire. I did not invent the idea yeah. that social media is undermining civic life. But I do think that like, there are a bunch of dominoes that do need to go over all at once. And I think that's one of the tricky parts about solving this is that the systems are now really big. They have a lot of weight and gravity, and that makes it tough to move them even a little, much less moving a bunch of pieces all at once. Yep. When it comes to informed consent, a lot of the things that I think are important are, are like a pathway toward sanity, a pathway back toward, or not back, not even back, a pathway toward a civic life that feels rich and functional and productive and diverse in all the right ways um, is about promoting individual agency. We just mm -hmm. talked about choice and choices getting made for us by gatekeepers. Part of the problem is that we live in a, in a media landscape of apparent choice, but not actual choice. Right. And it's related to this sort of how, how informed is our consent to participation in these systems at a very basic level, the basic design sort of principle of getting me to agree to a terms of service that I don't read is like the standard opt-in for all these systems. No one reads them. Nope. And they sort of form this like pseudo legal environment in which I have like signed over all my rights to all of my information in exchange for a free experience. And there's a joke in Silicon Valley that if something is free, you're the product. It's just not funny. Like it, it is a system of exploitation designed to create profit at the expense of things that I'm not aware I've lost. And one of the things we've lost is functional civic discourse. Mm -hmm. And so creating systems where what those trade-offs are, are more apparent, more obvious, where there's more friction in the signup process. Companies aren't going to like that, but I don't care. That's not my mm -hmm. problem. The, that's a problem for someone else to solve. And they will. Designers will figure this out. But where the, where the trade-offs are more clear and where the negative consequences are not solely borne by individuals. The down, right now, what happens with a lot of these sort of systems is that there end up being you know, downstream problems and it's just all, all put off on the user. It's like, oh, we're just giving people what they want. Right. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think you can claim to be sort of like driving this sort of decision process, and then not take responsibility for the choices you're offering people. Um, I just don't think that's that's reasonable. And I, and well, I, I think, go ahead. I, I, it made me flash. I had a series of podcasts around tech and ethics, and it's it's someone sure. said it's not that I want to see the car wreck; it's that I can't help but looking at the car wreck. Right. Yeah, and and taking advantage of our psychology and then blaming us is pretty twisted. <laughs> That's right. Like we are yeah. still humans and animals, and we're you know if you can scare me, you can get me to react in a fairly predictable way. Right. Um, and so you know I talk a lot about the tyranny of outrage and like being stuck in a cycle that I wish I wasn't in, and like I I spend a lot of time thinking about these problems, and I still have to like really really 
avoid the like hot take declaration culture of political Twitter. And I still, every day there's like something I write and don't tweet at least once every single, mm-hmm. every single day. And most mm-hmm. of the time I stop myself. Um, most of the time, <laughs> uh, but it's really hard, right? Like this like entire yeah. sort of momentum and energy of the most clever gotcha is like the, 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 the most, the best currency. Like it's just, it's all, pretty much optimized around the wrong challenge. And ultimately that's where a lot of this comes down to is the choices have been taken out of our hands. Our agency has been diminished. And then the choices being made for us are, are in service, not of us and what we need from a public sphere, but in service of what optimizes the advertising inventory and the behavior selling that these platforms can do. And I don't mind them selling ads. I don't even mind them doing selling highly targeted ads i would like to be able to opt into what how my information is used i would like to be able to opt out of certain elements like you making all these decisions for me so can i turn off the algorithm can you just give me a a, can you just give me a feed that is in fact neutral it's just chronological maybe chronology isn't even neutral but i think it's probably as close as we get yeah um can i can i have that choice And you're going to be like, well, that's not efficient. I don't want it to be efficient. And then I want to consider that in addition to optimizing for ads, you also consider optimizing for discourse. Mm -hmm. The discourse can be described in very specific ways about like our willingness to, our ability to see and understand other perspectives and engage with things that are not purely. And Facebook knows what confirms my bias. Yeah. And so they know what is adjacent to me. They could show this to me anytime they wanted to, but my behavior might not be the same. I wouldn't rage click all day long and I wouldn't shout at the rain and I wouldn't, I might not do things that are as profitable for them, but discourse might start to improve because I might start, stop engaging with others as caricature. I might start to understand, even if I disagree with the life experience of other people who don't aren't like me, whose life experiences aren't like mine. And that would start to improve our ability to have a functional political discourse again. And so it's this kind of articulation, not of like, you know, it's not Mark Zuckerberg deciding what is true. It's not, you know, trading my choices about what's valid for someone else's. It's creating an environment in which we are actively trying to create a healthy community and not just optimizing everything for individual engagement. Yeah, and well, that, that's the fundamental problem, though, because the business model, which has been massively profitable, because yeah, it's huge, like people, the biggest companies not, in the world, and 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 with the with the fewest employees of any time in America. I mean, yeah. like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the margins are crazy because it's absolutely the outrage clicks. So it would take, yeah. Um, uh, well, there are look, and and there there is. Look, there, there, there are systems level changes and redesigns and changing the, the changing the interfaces and creating friction, slowing things down. They would all increase our tolerance for nuance. They would all like drive us toward a, a better efforts to understand and, and some of these other habits. Some of that also requires us to change our personal behavior, right? There is a look. Personal responsibility is often like an absolute like. Uh, lie told to blame people for problems that are systemic problems. Yeah. And there are things about our own behavior in these systems that we need to try to own. Mm 
Right now, it's almost impossible to be a healthy participant because the systems are so unhealthy. Yeah. As the systems get healthier, we need to try to like build up our media literacy so that we actually just understand the systems a little bit better. It will make us less easy to manipulate, for instance. That's right. There are, in addition to sort of the systems and the personal shifts, there are sort of regulatory systemic institutional shifts that need to change. Some of those are government. Regulation is a way of codifying values and moral leadership, right? So we need a declaration of principles and then we need regulation that helps, helps guide us in that direction. But the companies also need to acknowledge, you know, there has been this movement in the business community over the last decade around the shift, the, the shift, it's often articulated as the shift between a shareholder mentality and stakeholder mentality. Yeah. And that as shorthand for understanding a company understanding its role in its community with more dimension than just mm-hmm. profit and job, right? It's not, humans aren't just economic inputs of labor. They're whole people and they have other needs and benefits and other kinds of things. And I think continuing to expand on that idea in terms of how business understands its role as, you know, in terms of civic life and discourse and community and not just about individuals, but about their role broadly is part of how these companies start to acknowledge that they are responsible for the negative externalities they create. And that's not part of the culture of break, you know, move fast and break things, disruption at all costs, you know, well, disruption for the sake of venture scale returns, right? Like that's the, that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the equation of a lot, what has driven a lot of these companies. And I just don't think we are likely to survive long as a species under that kind of pressure. Um, Because I think ultimately humanity as an input for profit it is it is a commodification of meaning and spirit and life that we're just not going to survive. Like, it, it, and and it's not the kind of it's not going to be the kind of life that any of us want. And it's part of why we rebel so hard about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, for me, this sort of conversation about media and technology and ethics connects into our ability to confront these larger questions. That I look, I I have been in around this sort of digitization of democratic politics and digital things for a long time. And so I, I think they're important to solve, but largely because I think if we don't solve them, we can't go after the bigger things. Right. Like humanity's relationship to the natural world. How are we going to have a meaningful debate about how we think about the relationship between industrial humanity and the natural world in a world where we cannot have a discussion? How are we going to engage in a real conversation about whether American style capitalism is actually good for people in a world where we can't debate? It's too complicated. It's just too. And so we end up in a world where our solutions are all very incremental and we use the language of movements and transformation because it's inspiring, but they're not movements or transformations. They're all because our ambition is reduced to this like really sort of like painful incrementalism because the bigger conversations aren't accessible to us. Like, and we're just desperate for it. It's interesting, you know, the, in, in our field and improvisation, we talk about all of us are better than one of us, uh, which yes. I firmly believe. And, but that means all of us. 
And and I don't I yeah. that and that's the problem because they, like you, you, for many of us like well all of us right right <laughs> you know all of us right in front of it it's not all right. of us and it's like no right. no no it's it's all of us and it's interesting at I, I, uh, breakfast this morning I was reading the New York Times there was an obituary for Roger Mudd a uh, legendary mm-hmm. journalist and it just mm-hmm. brings up this time when you know and you're looking at all these like you know. Uh, um, Brinkley and Huntley and Cronkite and and you talk in in the sort of where do we go from here part of that the term news needing mm. to be reclaimed sure. um, and so so before I'm going to ask you for your SN story uh, soon but I want to I want to touch on that because I think it's important yeah I mean I think uh, under sort of a bunch of pressures um, that probably probably really started with sort of the advent of 24-7 cable news yeah. uh, and the collapse of the Fairness Doctrine in the 80s. Um, it, you, we started to, to, to push a lot, of, a lot of different types of content into a bucket that we called news. And that includes things like analysis and commentary and opinion, all of which are part of journalism as a set of information. But that news there, there's an idea about information that just is meant to help us understand what happened in the world around us. Mm-hmm. Like what happened? Not what do you think I should think about what happened? Not what you think about what happened, just like what happened. Yeah. And I think it's, it's become very hard to figure that out because so much of the content that we call news is not that it's all the other things. Because look, if I put a camera on you and tell you to talk, you're going to run out of what happened pretty fast yep. because you're only, you can only be so prepared for your broadcast. You got to fill the time. Mm-hmm. So you're going to fill the time with analysis mm-hmm. and your analysis might be right on and it might be important, but your analysis is going to be biased because you're a human and you're biased. Mm-hmm. And depending on sort of the posture of the entity for which you're broadcasting, it might be really biased. Uh, and that might even be okay with me if you were honest about your bias. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I just want that television channel to be called biased political commentary all day by yeah. Kelly Leonard, who right. believes the, you know what I mean? Like, I just want yeah. it to be clear. Yeah. I don't want that to run under the banner of here's what you need to know about the world today. And like a breaking news headline that's like in like 45 point font and blinking red because like nothing new happened, but they're trying to keep me from changing the channel. Like, what about the idea that there is an end point to being informed? That that concept doesn't work well with our our sort of modern business concepts about media. That like, yeah. there's some there's some idea that like, I know what's going on. I've done I've done work to understand other people and 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 other issues and things that are around me, and and I am complete, at least complete enough for right now and i can go on to other things completely I, at odds with all of the business models that we're talking about including well, news tr- uh, truth and money um are not they don't go well together um uh <laughs> unfortunately well and, and look newspapers originally in the united states were were sort of owned by political parties right so they mm-hmm. we started out with a a very biased subsidized model for information and gradually we that expanded largely under commercial pressure um, to less partisan information. And then the Columbia Journalism School around the turn of the century sort of started to codify principles of journalism and trying to create a, like a real profession around it and introduce the concept of being unbiased and impartial. And those are two different concepts. 
Um, and I think we went through a little bit of a golden era where we sort of assumed certain trustworthiness about journalism, some of which was we were striving for, but not really possess like being unbiased, like humans aren't unbiased. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we may do our best to surface bias and acknowledge bias and recognize bias and be honest about like, there are lots of things that we can do. And I talk about the value of the transparency of bias a lot. Yeah. Um, and even that is tricky. Like me be it's, it's hard to acknowledge the water we live in. Mm -hmm. the, the air we breathe every day. And so even being self-aware enough to be able to articulate with clarity what all my biases are is a lot of work, um, but we can try. And I think that's part of the reclaiming news is being more clear about the intent of what we're distributing, the, the quality and nature and intent of the content. Then this is back to individual agency. When I was talking about, I want the channel to be labeled partisan commentary for 200 Alex. Like mm -hmm. I like that's about giving me the choice. Mm -hmm. And if, and if my mom wants to click on that button all day long and watch Rachel Maddow all day long, then great. And I think Rachel Maddow is really smart. I think she's a great commentator, but I also want a channel that says what happened in four minutes. And then there's like color bars for 54 minutes an hour. Yeah. There, there was a point where someone, and this is a while ago, uh, suggested to me that I go to real clear politics and that that mm. is the most impartial website mm. until I, I know until I did some research and I'm like, Oh no, this is not at all. And I really felt lied to and, and, and not by the person who told me because they didn't, they, they assumed they were working with good information. Mm -hmm. um, but that I had to work that. Well, I didn't have to have to work that hard to get it, but it's, it's those, that's the shortcuts, right? We, we make yeah. assumptions. So, um, look, I, I think, I think it's really hard to like Rookal products is very is is a pretty yeah. biased organization that, uh, un, under this banner of clear, you know, this sort yeah. of thing. Like I have a very recent example. I, I did an interview about the book with, uh, David Smith from the guardian. Uh, and it was a chance to sort of talk about this conversation in a lot of terms, um, and you know, I, I understand that like, there's a pressure to shape like the headline of even an interview or news in a way that's going to get attention because yeah. that's the mechanism that these, these folks use to, to transmit content. And so even the guardian headline focuses around sort of big tech, mm -hmm. uh, the real kind of politics version of that headline was Obama alum urges big tech to censor certain views. <laughs> <laughs> all right and look and, and look at it maybe it, it, if i'm trying to be generous maybe if you are of a certain persuasion you read my book and you hear censorship but i don't use the word censor not in the book no not at all or in the interview with the guardian no so look, I just, I, th I think this is an example, great and, example and not to jump up and down on any one particular person. Cause it's the same pressure all the way around and the yeah. same lack of transparency all the way around. And I want people to be able to make good choices about how they want to be informed, where they want to get information and what is the nature of what we're consuming. The lack of distinguishability is so disempowering that it makes us terrified and frustrated and, and all these other pieces. And I just don't want people, I don't want to feel that way. I don't want other people. I don't want anyone to go through life in community in a state of like unrest and fear all the time. 
It's just not a recipe for a healthy humanity. It's not how I want us to live. Yep. Uh, and I do want to, I highly recommend this book and, and that, that, that chapter, and it's hard, the, 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 uh, the graph and, and the nodes and sort of thinking through, if you don't have a mathematical mind, it took me a couple of reads and I'm going to go back and read it again, but it, there's a level of media literacy that I felt I came out with, uh, from reading this book that I just didn't have or even considered, uh, before. So that was really a, a welcome surprise. Um, so you've done this before where we've ended with a yes and story. Do you think you can dredge up another one? Um, I, I think I'm kind of in one right now. Um, okay. you know, I, I think for me, writing, writing this book, book projects are long projects. Um, and I started writing this book in 2013. Nice. Um, uh, when I started first sort of digging into this architecture question about channels and graphs and I picked it up and put it down and picked it up and put it down. And ultimately it's coming out in a moment where it's like oddly timely, yeah. In a way that is sort of proof that it's better to be lucky than good. Yep. And uh, the both, the, the sort of yes and to this is, yes, there is a story about media and technology that we have been in up to now. And that does not have to be the story going forward. That's mm-hmm. where this is optimistic and hopeful mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. which is that the meanness and dysfunction that we feel and smallness of our politics is, has been and feels like to me a lot of our present, but it does not have to be our future. And if we allow the future we want to dictate our choices, we will start to move in a very different direction. And I wonder that we all sort of, you know, in this moment of sort of Obama land and Trump's America, and how can you believe that, right? These sort of thoughts we have that like, you know, my, grandmother had about my nephew and that I might have about my crazy uncle. Like what if we entered the world believing that our civic life and the quality of our community depended on those people participating equally with us? Yeah. How would we act differently toward them? I wonder what would result. I think it would be pretty different. Yeah. I I think, I think it would be better. The, 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 so. the question I, you know, I'll, in, in my field, I say, um, so improvisation uh, increases people's ability to l- listen. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think would happen if everyone in the world listened 2% better? Do you think it would change mm-hmm. things? Mm-hmm. Profoundly. Profoundly, right? Profoundly. 2%. That's not a big Look, percentage. No, it's not. And I think that that willingness to consider... I, I, I think there's an aspect of forgiveness to this of ourselves yeah. and of each other that we have sort of been pulled into this dysfunction by a lot of forces and that sort of the act like we we've, we've as a result, we sort of pushed back from the table in sort of horror and yeah. recoiling from a lot of what this is. And we're stepping toward each other is an act of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, the book is called For All the People, Redeeming the Broken Promises of Modern Media and Reclaiming Our Civic Life. Michael Slavey, thank you for coming back on the show. So good to be back. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. 
If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive